This morning I'm going to shift gears. It's been a year where we've been marching our way through, or creeping our way through the book of Luke, several of the chapters of the book of Luke. And before we come to the season of Advent, I wanted to spend a little bit of time, and at least from now and into the month of November, focusing in on a particular issue beginning with this morning. And actually, the thoughts began a number of years ago in what started out as a very casual conversation with one of the great mentors in my life that was focused on the subject of influence and leadership. It was one of those conversations where we were kind of together moaning. I guess that's what old men do. We, We gripe. We complain, particularly uh, uh, when we see the drift in the society all around us, a drift that Robert Bork once called uh, society slouching toward Gomorrah. (laughs) And, and, And we asked ourselves the question, what is the missing ingredient in our day and age? We wondered that together. And my mentor offered me a a three-word answer that has captivated my thoughts. He said, what's missing in large part is a greatness of soul, those three words. What a wonderful turn of words. There's, There's sheer poetry in that phrase, and it's embedded itself in my mind. Greatness of soul. As you look at the trends in our world you ask yourself the question, what, what quality of character do you look for uh, that would stand against the gathering darkness? I have to believe that it is defined by men and women who possess a greatness of soul. And when we use the word great, it, it's almost too familiar to carry any impact. It's so familiar that you might be tempted to dismiss it as something trite, I have a friend, and every time I ask him how he's doing, it's always, I'm great. How's work? Great. How's the family? Great. The sky is falling. Great. Your pants are on fire. You're great. You know, it's, everything about him is great. And that word just becomes really too familiar. And maybe we, won't, we don't respond to it with the same sense of awe that, that occurred in earlier generations. In fact, we have to kind of come up with new words, like Awesome. Instead, but, but somehow that very turn of phrase, greatness of soul, hit me like a punch. And I had to ask myself the question, how many people do I know who possess a greatness of soul? And so let me sharpen it a little bit. I'm talking about someone who is marked with a simple devotion to God, a, a record of thorough integrity, a, a person who is possessed of a perspective of vision that sees beyond the issues of this world and is able to then discern, in the distance even, the presence and the purpose of God. Greatness of soul is marked by a man or a woman of courage who is disciplined in spirit. And I have to ask myself the question, where do I find such a model to follow? And to answer that question, I would turn to the Bible. And when I did, I discovered that there is almost like a spotlight scanning the whole crowd of biblical personalities that finally comes to center upon one single solitary figure. And in fact, if, if you look at this in the Bible, you'll find that Jesus is the one behind the spotlight who has fixed the spotlight on this character. And you see that in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verse 11. Whenever you hear Jesus say these words, he says, I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater 
than John the Baptist. What an incredible announcement. There was no one among those born of a woman, and I guess that covers about every other human being because I can't imagine a human being born in any other way. There's no one among those born of a woman who is greater than he. And just pause for a moment and think to yourself, what Jesus is saying is here he is. He's the prototype, and you want to know what it means to be great? You want to know how to be able to define greatness of soul? Well, here he is, John the Baptist. He's the greatest. And it's fascinating because I I suppose it's because of these words spoken by Jesus, I I, I then launched on a, a study of this one man, John the Baptist, and was amazed really to discover just how much material there is in the four Gospels about John the Baptist. I always thought him to be an obscure character, but really there's a lot there about him. And what I did, and as I did, I had to recognize that my pursuit was not just a matter of curiosity, as if, oh, I'm looking at somebody who I could never, ever, ever compete with. I mean, once someone has been identified as the greatest, you might as well give up your dream to compete with them anyhow to begin with. I mean, we know people who have been identified as the greatest in their fields, the greatest artist, the greatest athlete. Well, let me make it personal. Who is the greatest golfer out there? <laughs> Tiger Woods in his prime, Jack Nicklaus, uh, Jordan Spieth. And sometimes I imagine what it would be like if I were to then get into a competition playing around with any one of them, and it is not a pretty picture. Because in studying their greatness, it's as if it's beyond me. But not so with John the Baptist. If you go back to Matthew chapter 11, it is as if Jesus anticipates this problem about us. And in verse 11, he goes on to say something more. He says, in the beginning, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Don't leave now. Yet, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. You know what Jesus is saying here? He is offering an invitation to you and to me, to all of us, to look at John as the model. For it is attainable. If you trust me, Jesus is saying, if you let me rule in your heart as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, the least even, but empowered by the Holy Spirit, you can grow up to be just like him. (laughs) So get busy growing up to become the man or the woman that God has meant you to be from the beginning of time, and you too can, in fact, exhibit a greatness of soul. By the power of the Spirit of God, it is not something beyond any one of us any more than it's beyond any one of us to stand up straight in our world and turn it upside down. It's not beyond any of us to be a man or a woman of God known with a greatness of soul. And there is probably one paragraph that stands out in the Gospels that that then defines what this greatness is more than any other. It puts John the Baptist in sharp focus and, and it exposes the character and the elements of this greatness. You'll find it in the passage that was read this morning in the Gospel of John. If you have your Bibles, turn there to John chapter 3. Because as you turn there, I want to set up the scene. 
Because in the process of his ministry with John the Baptist, we finally have come to a moment of crisis. We kind of jump into that in John chapter 3. John the Baptist had already established himself as a formidable figure with a notable ministry. He was somebody on the scene. And as we come to John chapter 3, verse 23, we discover that a number of disciples, men and possibly women who had lived with John, who had grown to love and to serve him, they are confronted with the disturbing news that whatever popularity and attention that John had was now being threatened by a competitor. Just up the river was this guy named Jesus, and, and, and he now had disciples, and it was evident that, the, that their world was now being threatened. Listen to their question as they raise it in John chapter 3, verse 26. Rabbi, uh, uh, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he's baptizing, and everyone is going to him. You see, up until this point in the gospel, John had a monopoly on the baptizing market. I mean, he was the man. He was John the Baptist. Only now there was another baptizer, and his name was Jesus. And the crowds were going to him. And it's really not hard to see this really as a moment of crisis. And I would suggest that it is in crisis that we really discover the true character of a human, of a man or a woman. It is in a moment of crisis that life then drills down to the very soul to reveal the essence of character. Gordon MacDonald wrote that often in history we discover that a man or a woman will spend 30 or 40 years in quiet, obscure preparation for just a single moment. A particular event where suddenly you discover everything of value in that person exploding on the scene. And this is such a moment for John the Baptist. And beginning in verse 27, John reveals himself, the core of his inner being, with attitudes that define what I believe to be the essence of the greatness of soul. I call them attitudes because in large measure they center on four Critical and major issues that every single, of us, every single one of us needs to face in life. And these are places where we need to make a choice. Because we have a decision to make that will determine the sort of attitude that carries us into the future. And you have to resolve these issues if you're going to get your act together. And the first issue has to do with the matter of stewardship based upon the ownership of your possessions. Listen to what John says in verse 27. To this, John replied, A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. For some time, the crowds had belonged to John. But now, as they're slipping away, we discover that he really didn't own them to begin with. I would suggest that one of the greatest tests of life is how you deal with your grip on things. 
Because, you see, we, we, we often measure greatness in terms of acquisition. How much you own, how much influence is yours, the net worth of your very being. And it's not just a matter of riches. It's sometimes a matter of stature, being a person of prominence or rank or reputation. It's what gives you the ability to, to stand on your hind legs and bellow into your world, I am somebody. And it's not just a matter of wealth. I mean, pastors have that own problem themselves. I, I might as well confess it to you. Maybe like John the Baptist, we share into the lure of crowds. And I mean, I'd like to think that as years go by, I get better and better with my skills and it earns me a reward because it's mine. But I discovered that it wasn't mine to begin with. It was a gift from God that is his all through. When I first started in ministry, I was... <laughs> it was a thrill when I was able to preach to 90 people in, in, in Easter at my first church. That was, wow, big time. Uh, but, but I couldn't wait until that number turned to 150. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then when that happened, my, my, <clears throat> my, my eyes uh, began to uh, turn to hundreds and, and on and on. And, and to my embarrassment, I discovered that, in fact, it's not a matter of numbers because no number will satisfy any appetite of possession when it comes down to attendance. <laughs> and I'm sure that you can make your own confession as well. For you, it may be per- professional prestige or recognition or position as much as it would be a matter of possessions. But I suggest to you that there will, in fact, be a moment of crisis that will, in fact, test the true nature of your heart when you realize that whatever it is that you hold as a measure of your success is, in fact, slipping from your grasp, and there's nothing you can do about it. And here we see greatness on display. The crowds may have been his for a moment, but in reality, he did not own any one of them. He was a steward. And as the crowds began to slip away, well, they were never his to begin with. He was a steward of the things that God had had loaned to him, and he was determined to deal with them properly. Which raises the question that every single one of us needs to ask, are we free to simply be a steward and, like John, to receive that which has been given from heaven? If you are, this is an indication of a greatness of soul to be able then to offer it back freely to him. And after John then reveals the great heart of a steward, then he reveals the second thing. He reveals a settled sense of identity. Look at verse 28. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ but I'm sent ahead of him. (laughs) If if John were like us, the sort of person who has been schooled to worship (laughs) self-esteem, someone whose identity is pinned on success, this would have been an extremely troublesome moment. Some of you know what that's like. Uh, Humor me for another confession that I shall make from my past. As a pastor, I would often take a day off during the week when I would catch up on errands around the house, and, and I'd often run to the store in my jeans and my T-shirt, or I'd be out mowing my lawn in, in my scrubs. And I, and, and, and I couldn't help but then notice uh, along the way a look in people's eyes when they'd be looking at me with, with some degree of pity. The poor guy, he doesn't have a job. 
Isn't he a little old to be mowing lawns for a few bucks? And I, as I would see these looks, I, I, I would, the little voice inside of me would begin to say something like, hey, it's Dr. Shrag to you, or better yet, your majesty will do, you know? Because it becomes a test of identity, and identity is at issue. But look at John the Baptist. He tells us who he is by telling us who he is not. I am not the Christ, he says, and I'm okay with that. That's the measure of a, of a great soul. Oh, he could have been tempted. There have been others who had received the, the, the results of a popularity contest in the time who did succumb to the temptation. He could have been tempted, and when the crowds pressed him, he could have gotten drunk with the popularity and said, yep, you got me, I'm the one you were looking for, and they would have bought it. But it was most important for him to know who he was, and even more important to know who he was not, and then stay the course. You notice what he says here. You have heard me say it all along. I've stayed the course. I am not the Christ. And his identity was simple, but it was solid. And it was good. No, no, let me tell you. It was great that he knew who he was in his place in the kingdom. And that same works for us as well. It is good for us to know our place in the kingdom and then live out that role with gusto. Is that a German word? Gusto. So, this revealing of that greatness of soul is a steward who is not an owner and a servant who is not a savior. And then with his next words, John reveals that he had settled the third critical issue. And that a greatness of soul was defined then by his sense of purpose. Look at verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, however, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. I read that and became so impressed with this man. This is a man who knows his role in life and then finds his greatest satisfaction in fulfilling that role. If it had been otherwise, I could easily imagine that getting news of his slip in his ratings and the drop in his polls would have been very troubling. But instead, just hearing the news about Jesus therefore caused him to say, my joy is complete. You see, he had taken his stand in the world, not expecting to be in the spotlight Like the bridegroom, he's happy just being the bridegroom's friend. (laughs) As a pastor, I have performed (laughs) quite a few weddings. And I've read this verse and I've wondered how it could be different. And to be honest, I have never done a wedding where, in fact, the best man stepped up onto the stage and pushed the bridegroom aside and said, Hey, look at me. I am the best, best man ever. Check out the tux. The haircut. Hey, look at my shoes and check out my moves. Uh, Look at me, look at me, look at me. Uh, Best men don't do that. They focus their role on delivering the groom and, and the attention upon the happy couple. And John says, when it comes to my sense of purpose, I am to Christ what the best man is to the groom. So if the crowd is now going to him, super. Great! 
That joy is now mine and it is complete. Which leads then to the fourth issue. An issue which, if settled, becomes the distinctive mark of a great soul. The capstone, as it were. That of accomplishment. In verse 30, he says, He, Jesus, must become greater, I must become less. Some of you have it translated, He must increase, I must decrease. I don't know about you, but there is so much power in those simple six words. He must increase, I must decrease. There is so much nobility found in the one who serves and who gives and who sacrifices and then is able to step aside with a sense of purpose and accomplishment. There is a unique radiance that surrounds the man or woman whose sole purpose in life is to lift the name of Jesus higher and higher and higher into their world, where he increases while they decrease. There's a beauty in that greatness of soul. They may not be recognized by the world. They may not be noticed, but in the eyes of God, in the eyes of Jesus Christ, they are Great. No one greater. <laughs> there are such places in our world where, where such character does, in fact, receive a reward, surprisingly. I don't know about you, but I'm a big fan of the National Football League. <laughs> and, and you might think that greatness there is recognized with the obvious awards, the Super Bowl or the MVP. What you may not know, that there is also another war award that is given each and every year. And, it, and, it, and it's not a ticket to the all-pro team, but is in fact something called the all-Joes team. <laughs> every year, USA Today newspaper bestows the award upon the overlooked and underappreciated players, the men who sacrifice their egos for the good of the team. For all their hard work, they receive no glory, but they are all Joes to us. One of the winners of that award, William Henderson, he was a fullback for the Green Bay Packers and, 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 and didn't carry the ball much at all. It probably just re- recovered a fumble here and there, but, but, but he, 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 he ran ahead of Amon Green, who was an all-pro running back, and he, just, he, he received the award, and, and when he received it, he described his, his recognition of that award by saying this, you've got to know your role. I am here to create a cavity for Amon to get through and to protect the quarterback from bodily harm, and that's all that really matters. His whole purpose in life was to make a hole, <laughs> if you think of it. And each of the all Joes, they get this little trophy. But I love the inscription that is carved into the silver of that trophy. It says, if you work hard, good things will happen to somebody else. (laughs) What a great trophy to have. And that's all that mattered to John the Baptist. For when he spoke of his greatness of soul, he made it very simple. He must increase while I must decrease. Which then raises a question that every single one of us needs to resolve in heart and mind. What matters most? What matters most in the way of, of the recognition or the success or the attainments of life? 
And how do they relate to God and his purposes? And how is it that we are then put in a position where even in simplicity, we have the ability to leverage the name of Jesus Christ and lift him higher and higher and higher? We have a model before us with an invitation from our Lord Jesus Christ that even the least in his kingdom are able to attain. Are you a citizen of his kingdom? If so, you, are, you have the opportunity. But the question comes, are you determined to grow a great soul? Are you ready to live a life as the man or the woman that God meant you to be? It is only up to you now to settle the issue and then to get on with a steadiness of purpose and trust yourself to his care.